Hello, you're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. Good afternoon. Today, I will speak on the Blue Cliff Record, Case 41, Joshu and the Great Death. Engo's introduction. When right and wrong are intermingled, even sages cannot distinguish between them. When positive and negative shift freely, even Buddhas fail to discern one from the other. When you transcend the norms, manifesting capacities of extraordinary magnitude, you walk the ridge of an iceberg, you tread the edge of a sword. You are like the unicorn's horn, like the lotus blossoming in the fire, meeting another who transcends convention. You recognize that one as an equal. Who is that? See the following. Main subject. Joshu asked Tosu, when one who has died the great death returns to life, what then? Tosu said, you must not go by night. You must go by the light of day. Secho's verse. Open-eyed, all the more as if dead. What is the use of testing a master with an anti-serum? Even the Buddhas have never reached that point. Who knows when to scatter ashes into another's eyes. It just so happened that we began New York Zendo's 52nd anniversary session on 9-11. 19 years after hijacked planes struck the Twin Towers, of the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and a Pennsylvania field, killing nearly 3,000 people. More than double that number 
survivors and first responders have died of related illnesses since 9-11-2001 and COVID-19 continues to rage. The illusion of a separate place, a separate self, my house, my safe, secure life, my America was shattered on that day. Yet, that illusion took hold again very soon after amid the retaliatory wars the United States fought in Iraq and Afghanistan. And that illusion continues unabated on our own turf in the current climate of fear, ignorance, and malevolence. We say it just so happened, but in Buddhism, we also say nothing happens by accident. What could be more appropriate than offering our practice at such a time, rededicating ourselves 52 years after this Zendo was formally opened on September 15th. 1968. With the pandemic in full flare, the planet in crisis, the West in flames, and a heightened awareness of centuries of injustice amid a dangerous eroding of democratic ideals. With all this, The cost of ignoring causation is beyond comprehension. So from what we might call the relative vista, this is a time of great urgency. from the fundamental vista, which is, of course, not at all separate. We chant in Bodhisattva's vow, when I, a student of Dharma, look at the real form of the universe, all is the never-failing manifestation of the mysterious truth of Tathagata. All. 
in this age of the coronavirus, when the veils of complacency have been pierced by the truths of impermanence and interconnectedness. None can be other than the marvelous revelation of its glorious light. Therefore, we extend tender care with a worshiping heart to all beings. We know how precious it is, how essential it is to sit together this way. Most of us through Zoom and eight in person at New York Zendo and at Daibosatsu Zendo. Seeing those of you who are present in this beautiful Zendo during our sittings this weekend, I've wanted to jump right through the screen and join you live. And of course, for all of us in our hearts, that's what we're doing. On the altar is a 750-year-old standing Amitabha Buddha, Amida Buddha, the Tathagata of infinite light. Soenakagawa Roshi brought this Buddha with him from Ryutakuji on a ship in July of 1968. Soen Roshi wrote, True Dharma abides endlessly. Conditions are ripe. With the intense and passionate vow of the young monk, Edo Taishimano, the New York Zendo Shoboji is born in Manhattan. The weather is gorgeous. Bodhisattva weather. Is it an autumn day in the Nara period or a day at the time of Shakyamuni? And then he presented two haiku. America no nipombare. To nari ni keri. Cleared up sky of Japan, now in America. And Furuaki no aru hi no gotoshi New York. Like a day of an ancient autumn, today's New York. So joining Taisan, who would become Edo Roshi four years later as Soen Roshi's Dharma heir, were 200 some guests, including 
Doris and Chester Carlson, whose generosity made the purchase and renovation of this carriage house possible. And as many of you know, as if acknowledging the completion of his life's purpose, just four days after Shoboji's dedication, Mr. Carlson passed away. Among the Zen masters at the opening were Hakun Shitsuryoko Yasutani Roshi, honorary founder of this temple. Soen Roshi, abbot of Yutakuji. Joshu Sasaki Roshi, and Hakuyu Mayazumi Roshi. Shunryu Suzuki Roshi, who was in declining health, was represented by a huge 650 pound rock he had shipped from Tasahara. All these great teachers and most of the guests who were present that day have passed on. Those of us here now are drinking deeply of the bittersweet Dharma broth in which sorrow and joy, grief and gratitude are intermingled. In less than a week, the high holy days of Judaism begin. A recurring theme is teshuva, which means turning, turning away from egoistic delusion and attachment, turning toward God, toward the mysterious truth of this moment. Which of course is here even if you are turning away. There are three prerequisites for turning, the Rosh Hashanah text tells us. Eyes that see, ears that listen, and an understanding heart. If you have all three, you are ready to turn and be healed. When we have eyes to see, ears to hear, when the heart is open, we can heal and be healed simultaneously. This is our bodhisattva vow.
So in today's koan, we meet Joshu Jushin, whom you know well from numerous Zen cases. <clears throat> Wash your bowl. Joshu and the hermits. Joshu's oak tree in the garden. Joshu's stone bridge. And so many others. He was born in 778 and lived for quite a while. 120 years to be exact. He entered a Zen temple at a young age and he became a student of Nansen Fugan when he was 17 and had his first Kensho that year. And some of you may remember what he said after that awakening. I'll call on you now. Oh, everybody's eyes just opened. He said, suddenly I was ruined and homeless. Joshu died the great death and came alive again and again and again, always going deeper, always challenging himself and others to plumb the depths, the depths of this matter throughout his long lifetime. For 40 years, he was Nansen's disciple until his teacher's death in 834. Then he went on pilgrimage for some 20 years, walking up mountains and down again, meeting eminent masters, testing, challenging, and he finally settled in the town of Joshu at the age of 80. The present case today, his meeting with Tosu took place during those 20 years of pilgrimaging. Tosu Daido was born in 819 and also had a rather long life. He died at the age of 95. He was a disciple of Suibi Mugaku who gave him transmission. And then he sequestered himself on Mount Tosu for 30 years, compiling a collection of koans and writing verses. He lived hidden away on that mountain in a thatched hut, but word got out about his deep insight. And as you probably know, there were quite a few masters in Tang Dynasty China who lived as recluses, who went on pilgrimages to deepen their realization. No one was posting on Facebook. No one was putting out flyers, trying to gather adherence. And as far as we know, no one was thinking, ah, oh, I've got it. I should be called a Roshi. 
anyone who thinks that way now, please vomit it up so that we don't have to. In the Heart Sutra, we chant, no wisdom, no attainment. Indeed, there is nothing to be attained. The Bodhisattva relies on prajna paramita with no hindrance in the mind. No hindrance, therefore no fear. What are hindrances? We might say gaining ideas, gaining ideas of attainment based on some notion of a separate selfhood. Most of us, I dare say, have some familiarity in our zazen with hindrances in the mind. Sometimes they appear as what we think others expect of us or what we think we have to do to measure up or fearing, oh, we are falling short. We can never be good enough. And we're always comparing and seeking approval out there. And we also know the hindrance of a kind of enslavement which manifests as the mind always going elsewhere. I have to do this. I'd better arrange that. Something needs to be done. Then that thing is done and what? What happens next? Another thing and another and another. We get caught in this thinking that we can control or fix our circumstances. So always projecting, how can we be here for our lives? The paradox is that we hold so tightly to that which undermines our equanimity, our freedom, all the time underlying our anxieties is the fear that we'll lose this separated individuality this concocted self that we've been carrying around that's so heavy, so we might wonder, how do we break free from this endless round of samsara? And everybody here can give the answer, right? Hmm? Turn off your mute buttons. Everybody, all together now. Meditate. Just sit. <laughs> Zazen.
Meditate. Practice. <laughs> Nothing to break away from. Be simple. We all know what to do. Hmm? <laughs> okay. We just do it. Sit. Sit with no idea about what we're doing. What it's for. How it's going to improve our lives. No such thing. And then, of course, we go another step further and we think, okay, we better make our zazen better. This is really the cosmic joke. We better fix what's wrong with our zazen so we can fix what's wrong with our lives. And then maybe we'll be able to fix what's wrong with everybody else's lives because we know how that goes, right? You know, eventually we come to this great realization. It doesn't have to be called Kensho. This realization that there's nothing we can fix. There's nothing that is fixed. There is nothing fixable. All we can do is be this very breath. Exhale into vast emptiness. And relax. Relax. Just be as you are. The secret that you are keeping from yourself is that you are perfect as you are. But dashing madly around, how can you trust it? Just relax. This is session. This is the great effort, the great motivation of session to just be as you are in this fundamental perfection. So what does it require? It requires surrender. You can't relax until you give up, right? If you're holding on for dear life, no way. Open that fist. Die on the cushion is another way of putting it. Die the great death. And what then? Oh, where's my fear? Where's my anxiety? That's who I am. I'd better get it back. No hindrance, therefore no fear. So perhaps when you are sitting, just sitting, there is something some sound, some trigger, a turning word, some unexpected happening. And in the unconditioned realm of this great death, you may find you are reborn into Great life.
without that experience, that realization, of course we see everything as separate and threatening. We see life and death, right and wrong, positive and negative. But with awakening, as one master said, it's like coming back to life again after having lost your hold on the edge of a precipice and fallen to your death. So let go. Experience the great death and you will find that you can lead your life joyously, fearlessly. Every moment is so precious, so simple, and so profound. Engo Kokogong comments, one who has died the great death has no Buddhist doctrines and theories, no mysteries and marvels, no gain and loss, no right and wrong, no long and short. Get rid of it all. His introduction to this case introduces the themes and the characters. Yes, when right and wrong are intermingled, we know that dualistic thinking keeps us enchained. We're always discriminating between this and that, life and death. Many of us, in fact, may wonder, after all this time practicing, why do I still get so upset? Why do I feel oh, wrong again? I shouldn't have done that. It's so hard to let it go. And we find ourselves continuing the endless round of self-recrimination. And out of that, we may lash out at others. And then what? We feel worse remorse for letting our shit hit the fan and be spun around at others. This is what we call samsara. So how can we stop? We have to see what's happening. Right in the midst of sitting, something may be rearing up. We have to notice it and let it go over and over. Perhaps you have experienced having let something go and thinking, oh, good, that's that. And then almost the next sitting, perhaps the next breath, there it is again, just as believable as ever. So we have to let it go over and over and not think it's wrong, not berate ourselves, just over and over, recognizing and opening the hand that has been clenched. Just as the trees will soon be letting their leaves go and not trying to grab them back. Leaves fall. They go into the ground 
they enrich the soil. And as they decompose, they become the source from which new life can grow. It's a strange thing about this ground that we experience. Even when we have some taste of freedom, uh, the old conditioning may be quite strong. Maybe we feel we must skulk back into the known lair of right and wrong, of captivity. Much as freed prisoners are wont to do. Jail is safe. The cells we've constructed are familiar. We may fear the boundlessness of our true nature. In this true nature, there is yin and yang, darkness and light, structure and openness, form and formlessness, birth and death, all intermingled in one we find the other always shifting, never apart. It's a kind of perpetual dynamism, or as Dokoro Osho put it yesterday, dynamic dissolution, no fixed form, no fixed direction. And Engo says, even sages cannot distinguish between these intermingled states. Then he says, when you transcend the norms, the conventions of dualism, you show your awakened mind, your free capacities, You may remember the third ancestor, Sosan Ganji, saying, the ultimate end, the ultimate end of things where they cannot go any further is not bound by rules and measures. So transcending the norms, Engel continues, you walk the ridge of an iceberg, you tread the edge of a sword. This capacity is what Joshu and Tosu are manifesting in this koan. Their realization is so fine, so sharp so astute, they are so well-matched. Having died the great death, they can walk that ridge, the sword's edge. How rare, rare as a unicorn, that one and only, like the lotus blooming in the fire. So esoteric, wondrous, mysterious, uncanny. So Joshu and Tosu meet each other as one, recognize each other as an equal. And with that long introduction by Engo, we come to the main subject, which 
you'll be happy to know is very short. Joshu asked Tosu, when one who has died the great death returns to life, what then? This great death without a single thing remaining, complete extinguish. What happens when one returns to life, he's asking. A master of old said, the moment when you die the great death is when the great life manifests clearly. A contemporary teacher, Shodo Harara Roshi, put it this way. To be in the world of life and death and yet realize that which is beyond life and death is to realize the mind of the Buddha. To awaken to your true being. When Joshu asked that question, Tosu's sharp answer was, you must not go by night. You must go by the light of day. Engo called that answer direct as sparks struck from stone like the brilliance of a lightning flash. So having died a great death, what then? One must go beyond that, must return to ordinary life in the bright daylight in which each of the 10,000 things is sharply defined in its uniqueness. Each at the same time is none other than this one mind. When you see the emptiness of form, then all forms are nothing but this, this. In the Diamond Sutra, it says, a bodhisattva who practices charity with mind detached from form is like a person with open eyes in the radiant glory of the morning to whom all kinds of objects are clearly visible. And Rinzai put it this way, it has no form, yet distinctly shines alone. So, when you return, having died the great death, there is nothing but life itself vigorously manifesting, functioning freely. And this is what we mean when we say May we completely realize and actualize the Tathagata's teaching. This is Zen practice. Endlessly revealing. And as the koan Dokoro Osho spoke on yesterday, put it, after the great death, what? 
proceed on from the top of the hundred foot pole. Die the great death, but don't get stuck in that night. You must come alive. You must function in the light of day. And Chosha Keishin said, show your whole body in the 10 directions. Just do whatever has to be done simply and directly in the midst of whatever is happening. Respond to this one. Respond to that one. Embrace this one. Hold up that one. Allow this one to be absolutely still with no interference. Coming in the light of day. You are the master of circumstances. So just be ordinary. Enter the marketplace with gift bestowing hands as the verse to the 10th Oxherding picture puts it. Ordinary is most extraordinary. Sitting, breathing, dozing, awakening, greeting each of the 10,000 things as our most intimate, beloved thing. Dearest friend, Butsudo Mujo Seiganjo. The Buddha's way is endless. We vow to follow it. This has been a Zen Study Society podcast. If you found it to be of interest, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudies.org donate. Thank you for listening.